This is Ethan, and I'm here with Dave, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 63-inch. On this week's episode, we celebrate Gandhi 2 from UHF with Andy Billups and Alan Kelly, two of the thugs Gandhi beats up, and one of which also was the stunt coordinator on the film. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al it's a podcast about Weird Al. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. The reviews are in, Dave. People can't get enough of our Spatula City parody that we world premiered on episode 62-inch. M.G. Kelly loved it. Lisa Popia loved it. John Bermuda Schwartz loved it. I loved it. All the listeners loved it. You loved it. Dave, it's just amazing. That was so cool. We got such a great response for our Spatula City parody. (laughs) You know, as soon as we thought of the idea and then it actually happened, I think we knew people were going to love it. But actually having it out there and getting that response is just so awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm really honored. You know, my first parody ever, and it's of a great Weird Al skit, Spatula City. Yeah, I mean, it's a very unexpected parody. You know, you'd think you'd parody one of Al's originals or, you know, one of the songs. But this is, it's one of the few skits that exist in the Weird Al universe of official quote-unquote tracks or songs. And we pulled off an amazing parody. And for those who haven't listened to episode 62 inch yet, we got not only the original voiceover announcer, MG Kelly, we have the original unreleased backing music tracks, and we got a special guest appearance from Lisa Popiel. All in one amazing less than two minute track. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, amazing is not the right word for it. The right word for it is pretty stinking majestic. That is so right. So what do you say, Dave? Should we play it again? Yeah, we should absolutely play it again. All right. Well, before Frank hits play, maybe we should have a quick bite to eat. Maybe some vegan Mexican burritos? This week's episode is brought to you in part by vegan Mexican restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York, home of the two-pound double-wrapped-in-a-quesadilla Burrito Burrito. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito, your Burrito Burrito. Find them at burritosquared.com and at burritosquared on Instagram. And remember, not every burrito is a Burrito Burrito Burrito, but every Burrito 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 can be Burrito Burritoed. There's just one place to go for all your Weird Al needs. Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. A giant selection of quality content for every occasion. 2,000 to choose from, covering news, music, and more. And because we only listen to Weird Al, we can record all our episodes factory direct to you. Where do you go when you want to hear Weird Al superfans at a fraction of retail cost? Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. And this weekend only, take advantage of our special liquidation sale. Subscribe for nine months. Get the 27th month for just one penny. Don't forget, they make great weasel stomping presents. And what better way to say, I love you, Weird Al, than subscribing to our podcast. David Evans, 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. Hello, this is M.G. Kelly, friend of Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. I like their podcast so much, I recorded this promo. Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. We're in the yellow pages under Weird Al. My, where did you get that lovely podcast? This whole podcast is about Weird Al, and that's all. 
I cannot get enough of that. <laughs> Dave, you definitely said it best. It is pretty stinking majestic. That is hands down the best parody of Spatula City that I have ever heard. I 100% agree. And <laughs> I think everyone else could agree because I don't think I've ever seen a parody of Spatula City. <laughs> Well, Ethan, you remember a little bit over a fortnight ago that the Fest of Owl convention happened virtually? Yes, of course. How could I forget? Well, if you also remember, I actually won one of the raffle prizes and it just arrived in the mail. Whoa. Hey, that's a really big coincidence because I also received my prize in the mail. Oh, I didn't remember you winning any prize. Yeah, it was just a box full of nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, I didn't get a box, but I did get a package in the mail from Festival, and I finally figured out what I won, and that is this cassette tape from Anthony Kaffer, and the name of the title on the cassette tape is Cats Using Toilets. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And there's a picture of a cat using a toilet. Hey. <laughs> really pretty clever. And Anthony signed it for me. You know, he autographed the cassette for me. And the cool thing, I've never seen this before. The cassette itself is pink. How cool. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if it doesn't fit into your Weird Al collection, at least it will have a home in your Cats Using the Toilet collection. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dave, what's happening in the world of Weird Al? Our good friend Polly Esther will be doing an online performance of her one-woman show, Pollywood. That's tomorrow night, Thursday, July 16th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You do not want to miss her recounting her story of meeting Al for the first time and making the trip to L.A. from her home in Toronto for the Weird Al Hollywood Star Ceremony. Head on over to Facebook.com slash Fringe Livestream to watch the performance live. I cannot wait to finally check that out. Now, just this week, Al retweeted Sandra Boynton's tweet about her new song, Chanson Profonde, featuring not only internationally acclaimed cellist Yo-Yo Ma, but also internationally acclaimed accordionist Weird Al Yankovic. The song and video were released on Sanders YouTube channel for Bastille Day. Did you check it out yet, Dave? I was too busy checking out Yo-Yo Ma's Mama's Yo-Yo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to steal your joke, Al. That's an old tweet from Al. No, actually, I did check it out, and I really enjoyed it. It's a very funny video. Of course, it's all in French, but there are captions in English for people like me who do not know a word of French. <laughs> yeah, I was watching it, and I knew Al was in it somewhere, and he doesn't show up until the very, very end. But all the way through, I'm like, am I on the right link? Like, <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> and then, of course, I heard the accordion bump in there, and it was great. Now, Dave, in just the past few months, Al has collaborated with not only Ewan McGregor and Kermit the Frog, but now Yo-Yo Ma. Who's going to be next? Well, we may find out very soon. Oh? Just this week, an episode of MCP Connects Drop, where Al mentioned that he has an exciting music project coming out next month. Oh, I wonder if that's the Suzanne Instagram thing we've been talking about all this time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? I mean, it's got to surface eventually, right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right, so this is a really cool project that Al got involved in. MCP stands for Melodic Caring Project. That is a nonprofit which brings live personalized concerts to kids and teens and other patients in the hospital battling serious illness. 
Now, as part of this interview, Al dropped a lot of big news. Yes. So in addition to mentioning that an exciting music project is coming next month, and I wonder if he recorded this this month, meaning in August, or I wonder if he recorded the interview last month and it means in July. So I guess we'll have to wait and find out. But he also said that he's been pitching and is in pre-development on a TV and film project. That is really exciting. A lot of exciting news happening with Al coming up. Yes. Now, there was a little bit of sad news that came out of this. Sad for me and you because you know how much we love seeing Al on tour. But he did mention that, you know, with everything going on, the tour has been postponed indefinitely for next year. So very sad face on me and you right now. Yeah, and by indefinitely postponed, they don't have a date in mind. It could come in 2021, maybe not. But there's no definite answer there. So doesn't mean that he's never touring again. Just means we don't know. We don't know when. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was a nice shout out to Dr. Demento. The interviewer didn't seem to know who Dr. Demento was. So Al gave a little bit of a history a lesson there. <laughs> and I really enjoyed that he mentioned the 39 cent cassette tape, which last week, of course, you put a little tongue in cheek reference to as we were introducing our Spatula City parody. <laughs> yes, I did like that reference to the 39 cent cassette tape. And I wondered if he did pick that up off of our episode or not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you also noticed, but in the pictures they were using in the video clips, they used one from the star ceremony. I saw that. I was looking really close to see if I could see <laughs> you in the background or me in the background. And I did not. <laughs> That's so cool. I just every time I see that somebody use one of those pictures from the star ceremony, it does bring a little warm feeling to my heart because you know of how special that whole Al getting a star was to me. It's just it's really cool to, to see them used all over the place. One of my favorite parts of the interview was the interviewer asked him to sum up what music means to him in one word, and Al said, "Artichoke." <laughs> of course it's so obvious <laughs> and then he was like well why artichoke and i was like you told me to sum it up in one word if i said more it wouldn't be one word <laughs> which was an amazing answer <laughs> the only other word i would have used was probably pretty stinking majestic yes yes that one very long great scrabble word <laughs> Now, we mentioned a little bit in the preview at the beginning of the episode, and we mentioned last week that we are celebrating the release of UHF. So, of course, last week we interviewed two folks from the Spatula City commercial, and this week we are talking to two of the thugs from the iconic Gandhi 2 commercial. And, of course, you know, if you've seen the film, you know that Gandhi 2 was played by Al's manager and director of the film, Jay Levy. He's one bad mother you do not want to mess with. <laughs> He's a one-man wrecking crew. And honestly, <laughs> the guys that we spoke to who were the thugs, they are honestly one-man wrecking crews in and of themselves. They are <laughs> badass dudes. They've done a lot of cool stuff. I'm super excited for us to dive in and share these with you. We are so excited to welcome someone who was not only a professional boxer and kickboxer, he served three tours in Iraq fighting fires. He was punched through the chest by Gandhi in Weird Al's film UHF, and he lived to tell us the tale here on the podcast. Please welcome Andy Billups. Andy, how are you doing? 
Well, I think it's crazy that you guys called me, actually, after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw your name come up for that role, it's such an iconic role. I mean, it's a small part, but if you ask someone who's seen the movie, hey, you remember the guy who gets punched through his chest? People remember that. <laughs> I know, and, I, you know, it's funny because as time's gone on and that movie comes up from time to time, I'll say, yeah, I was actually in a, I was in a bit part of that movie. And they're like, <laughs> what part was it? I said, you know, the guy gets punched in the chest. That was you. <laughs> right? So, oh, I know. And I had a nephew that was like five who saw that at the time. And he, he thought I was killed. Oh, no. My sister, oh, no. My sister had explained to him that it was just a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and everything was good. And, yeah, it was funny how it came about because there's another guy you really need to interview. His name's Alan Kelly. He's the one of the stunt guys that I've known all my life because there's a bunch of karate guys that did that and he actually was, yeah he was in that scene with you well he's the one that goes in the trash can he's the one that yeah he's uh, <laughs> the one that goes he's the guy that actually goes through the window at the karate school scene oh wow so with long duck dong yeah <laughs> oh yeah we were up there yeah it took him two it took him two jumps that day to get that he broke his foot on the second one. Oh wow and um yeah but he's yeah he's the guy from tulsa and had a karate school up there, gone to L.A., done some stunt work, came back to Oklahoma. I was running the Joker's Comedy Club on 71st and Lewis. They had decided to shoot the movie there, and there was a strip mall, not a strip mall, but a, a big Galleria-type mall there that had, it was empty, and so they built sound stages in it. And so the crew came over one night to the comedy club, just coming over to the comedy club and my buddy walks in the door who I hadn't seen in years and years. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm running the comedy club. He's like, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm working stunts on this weird Al movie. I'm like, really? He's like, Hey, we need some karate guys in a couple of days. Want to come over? And that's how I ended up in the Gandhi. That's wow. how I ended up in the Gandhi thing. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So how did you know him all these years? Kickboxing, boxing. I own a gym, pro boxer, pro kickboxer yeah. and all that. And then, yeah, I was just running a was running a club, you know, and uh, at the time, and yeah, Alan fought and did a bunch of stuff too. So you, his name's Alan Kelly. You want to talk to him too? We definitely want to. But we still, yeah, we still keep in touch, and he's always putting Weird Al stuff up. So anyway, I'll quit talking. You guys can ask some questions. But that was the... <laughs> you got so much. To ask. All right. Well, I am a stand-up comedian myself, so I need to know how did you get in that business of running a comedy club. Oh, well, it was really kind of weird because, um, so I was growing, I was living in Oklahoma city and they had, they had Joker's comedy club there and a couple of friends of mine that I'd gone to school with actually owned it. And, uh, man, everybody, I knew everybody and I just started working the door there. And, um, it was during the uh, late eighties in Oklahoma. So that's when the uh, comedy business was big anyway. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I did that for a couple of years there, ran the door, became assistant manager, met everybody and their dog. You know, I mean, David Spade used to hang around before he was David Spade. <laughs> I mean, and he, but you know, we all knew he was going to make it because he was so businesslike. Yeah. We're like, that guy's going to go somewhere. And what, three, four years later, he's on SNL. Wow. We're like, see, we knew it. <laughs> um, Drew Carey, Marine, one of the nicest guys you will ever meet. But anyway, so did that for a couple of years. They ended up opening a club up in Oklahoma or up in Tulsa. They made me the GM up there. I stayed there for about six months. That's when the UHF movie was there. That just happened to coincidentally coincide <laughs> with that. And then I ended up going to LA and I walked in the comedy store and actually got a job there 
um, working the door. Wow. A guy, a guy, I mean, I'm walking in, I'm from Oklahoma, first time in LA really hadn't been out there. I drove a cab out there and stuff later in life and you know, I'm an old salt, but now I'm just a kid. I'm walking to the comedy store. I'm hoping August Hamilton might help me get a job. He's from Oklahoma and he dates Polly's mother, Mitzi, who owns the place. <laughs> right. And so, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe I can go talk to Arvis and get me a, you know, August Hamilton, get me a job. And I walk in, this guy is literally walking out the door going, if you, I've had it with this place. Da, da, da. Now he passes me. I walk in and the guy, this guy's standing behind the bar there. And he's like, what do you want? And I'm like, well, I wanted a job. And he's like, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I was the general manager of the Joker's Comedy <laughs> Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he said, general manager in Tulsa, Oklahoma? That means you get to work the door here. He just went, you can have his job. You want it? And that's how I got hired at the comedy store. Wow. True story. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for about four or five months. Ice Clay was coming on board at the time. Jim Carrey had written his million dollar check to himself and wasn't famous yet. Tyson was coming around with Eddie Murphy drinking in the club. Arsenio Hall had his TV show and was around. So that, you know, gives you the kind of the time period yeah. of everything going on there at the store. Polly was running around going, my mommy owns this place. My mommy owns this place. <laughs> you know, and that was, I met Biff Wilson, the guy who played, uh, or, or uh, Tom Wilson, the guy who played Biff yep. in Back to the Future. <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it was a who's who there because it was a comedy store. But yeah. Wow. I did that about four or five months. Couldn't make any money. I think I was making about four thirty-five an hour on minimum wage. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was hairdressing. Her dad ran a cab company in Oklahoma City. And she's like, hey, why don't you go drive a cab? I'm like, excuse me, drive a cab? Um, <laughs> and she's like, go do it. So I did it for a couple of weeks. Didn't make any money. She taught me to go in on Friday night. Came home with a ton of money, ton of stories. And I was hooked and I did it years straight at night and you know that i should write a book about because the <laughs> taxi cab confession show that ain't nothing compared to what i should write a couple books at least just what you've told us so far <laughs> i don't know i've had fun i've never tried to grow up because if i didn't by the time i was 50 i didn't have to so i tried to keep with that we are doing some research, and of course, you returned to professional boxing at 50. At 50, yep. Knocked him out. I, I fought twice that year. The first fight, I picked my own opponent. I'd sparred with him in the gym a bunch. He never gave me any trouble. So I called the phone and said, hey, I want to do this, and I haven't been in the ring in 20 years, and I fought as a world, you know, I was a world contender in the in the WKA when I was in the 80s kickboxer, so I was still in pretty good shape, but I could confidently pull this off and promote my gym. Mm-hmm because that's what I was doing now after I got back from Iraq. And uh, anyway, so um, he said, okay. So I don't know if his mama was in the audience that night. I don't know what. Maybe <laughs> he worked out or trained for this. But I get first 30 seconds, he hits me in the face with a right hand and puts me on my butt. First time I'd ever been on my butt in the ring ever. Wow. 2,000 oh. people in the crowd in my picture. I have a flyer on every seat. So everybody knows who this old man is who's just sat down in the ring in front of you know. People are going, knock this old man out, knock him out. There's a headbutt in the second round, and I mean, it gets bloody. By the fourth round, I lost on a split decision because of a knockdown. 
But by the fourth round, I mean, it was so bloody. People were cheering. I mean, it was insane. It was one of the best fights that ever been in Oklahoma City by the end of the night. Wow. So the idea, I lose on a split decision, but the idea is not, hey, the, the tagline is 50-year-old gets back in the ring and loses on a split decision. I have to win. So the promoter's like, you mean pick me your opponent this time and keep you out of it? I'm like, yeah, why don't you do that? So he gets me this kid. He's 25. He gives me a pretty good first round. He's gassed in the second, and I knock him out. So... Then we finally got 50-year-old gets in the ring and win. So then I just tired of that. So, okay, we'll keep it at that. Hell yeah. <sighs> wow. Okay, so we have to talk about UHF at some point, but you mentioned you were in Iraq? Yeah, I was a fireman over there for three and a half years. And wow. that's what the gym, my victory boxing is named after victory base. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was great. It's like a 500-day ride in the front seat of a fire truck. You just can't beat that. Tax-free, all <laughs> And uh, it was a little dangerous, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, I wasn't kicking doors with the seals or anything. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I was in Mosul for a year and a half. I like how you're fighting fire in a foreign country, and that's not so bad. <laughs> what is bad? <laughs> uh, COVID. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Now, were you on Dog the Bounty Hunter? Yes, we were. Of all the TV shows that we could have been on, um, I have a friend of mine who's a bounty hunter in Oklahoma City, and he's pretty good, dog gone good one, and he knows dog. Yeah. And the show was basically, hey, we got to help these guys. Sounds like, I don't need his help. I catch all my guys, but I want to be on the TV show. So he got dog to come into town. Dog did the TV show with him, and they ended up at the gym. So, yeah, the gym was on national TV. Wow. Yeah. How cool. I get lucky. I mean, it's weird. I get, I'm get. i a very lucky guy. Funny things fall in my lap all the time, just like the UHF thing. I mean, yeah. that stuff happens to me all throughout my life, forever. Yeah, now tell me a little bit about that, because, I mean, you mentioned that your friend Alan, you know, he kind of said, hey, I got this, you know, nose opening in this movie, UHF. What were your thoughts when you found out that, you know, hey, I might be in this movie. I might be working with, you know, a movie with Weird Al. I was... You know, we grew up, I mean, grew up, he was around in the 80s, of course, with all of his silliness, and uh, I thought it was cool, and I just thought it was fun to, you know, um, go out there and, you know, do some stunts and work with uh, Alan and all that. I had no idea that 40 years later, 20 or 35 years later, I'm going to turn on Showtime, and there I am, we're talking to me. That's what's crazy to me. What's crazy to me is I could still be channel surfing and catch that scene at three in the morning at fifty-seven. I mean, that's not. I figured that movie would just be pumped into space and that'd be the end of it. But no, it's not, is it? It's a it's a classic. It's a, a cult classic. It oh is. Yeah, yeah, definitely a cult classic. Absolutely. <laughs> Can you tell us a little more about you know your day? You know what happened? You know, when you showed up on set and what was going on? You know, that day. Yeah, so when we got there, uh, I think it was Jay Levy, the the guy playing Gandhi. Yeah, is yeah, the director of the film. Right. Yeah, and so he was there, everybody was there, and they were like, hurry up. I was in Oklahoma City at the time, living there, and my buddy called me up early that morning and said, okay, we're shooting that thing today, because it was one of those things where we're not exactly sure when we're doing this, when we do, I'm going to call you, so, you know, be ready to come on. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I remember he calls me early in the morning. And I get in the car and I drive up the turnpike to tell us about an hour and a half trip. And I'm like, I hope I get there in time. I hope I make it. I hope I make it. I hope I make it. You know, and I get there and it must have been about 10 in the morning. We probably shot that at 7 p.m. 
Oh, man. <laughs> wow. So I, I drove up to Tulsa at 100 miles an hour so I wouldn't miss it and ended up sitting around the set probably 10 hours before we shot it, at least seven. And then um, they they were telling me that I looked, that my hair, I had that spiky hair. They said I looked too preppy. I'm like, what are you talking about? I looked too preppy. But anyway, so we went into makeup and they dirtied us up and all that. And Alan's the one to my right. He's the one in the tank top, in the striped tank top, the big guy. Yeah. That's Alan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he, he was the one who put all of us together. He was, he was the one that, um, he was the one that was coordinating all the stunt guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so did you know the other stunt guys as well? Have you worked with them before? No, no, no. Alan's the only one I, I, I knew. And, and it was just because he came over that night at the, at the comedy club. And I ran into him. He's like, hey, we need some guys in a couple of days, and I know you can handle it, so why don't you come over? I'm like, sure, this sounds great. <laughs> so so that's what we did. And I had a blast. And it's still, I just, I was just showing it to the folks around here a minute ago hadn't seen it. They were like, you were in a movie? I'm like, yes, these guys want to interview me today on the phone. They're like, you're in, what, what movie are you in? I was like, UHF. They're like, you're in UHF? I'm like, yes, I'm in UHF. <laughs> <laughs> I just get in that. It's a long story, but just, just one of those right place, right time. So, and then the next day, Alan went over and he did he did all the stunts at the karate show or the karate school and and did all that. And how did you become the guy who gets punched through? I just got lucky. Yeah, <laughs> I just got the right face. Yep. <laughs> you know, I was like, my face didn't get shown, you know, but yeah. <laughs> But I, did, I, I am the guy I got punched through. So when I do, like I said, when I do tell people, what, what, who are you in the movie? I'm like, I'm the guy who gets punched through by Gandhi. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, so it's kind of cool. It's not going to be on my tombstone or anything, but I still think it's cool. <laughs> and were you there when they actually shot the fist going through? Was it like a dummy or do you know what it was? It was a dummy and they shot it later. Okay. They, they must have had an AD, you know, a second team or something, because no, yeah, no, because all I did was bend over, and then later, and then when I went to see the movie, you know, it was before the internet and all that, so so I'm sitting in the movie, and I'm like, because it's at the end of the movie almost, and I'm thinking, it made it, it got the cutting floor, they didn't, I'm not in the movie, this didn't make it, this didn't make it, and then the next thing I know, I mean, we're getting down to like, what? 15 minutes left of the movie or something before this thing's gone. And, and I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm, I just sat here through this whole movie for nothing. And uh, and then there I was. And, yeah. Okay. Fine. All right. Didn't waste my time. How long were you actually at the shoot? Was it a full day? I mean, you said you were there. It was. It, it was the whole day and night. We probably got out of there about, oh, 11, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock that night. Because we stuck around and watched Jay shoot that. Um, the part with the with the restaurant, yeah. And then it's not in the movie, but they had Rambo sixty there. The, some of the stunt guys, some of the prop guys, the actual Rambo First Blood sixty cal was with them that day. The prop guys had that, and we were playing with it. <laughs> but that's not the one that's in the movie. Oh, you know, wow. they, he's got that little bitty machine gun in the movie. Huh. But we had, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, we actually had the Rambo, yeah, M60, the one they used in Rambo first blood. They're on the set. Interesting. I know, so we got to play with that a little bit. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I don't know why they had it. I don't know if they were going to use it. But that apparently that was the one that they used. Huh. Mm-hmm. So when you were on set, was it just Jay who was there? Were there any of the other stars, Weird Al, anyone else there? 
Um, I never saw Weird Al. Mm-hmm. Victoria and Mike Richards, I did see. Yeah. Um, but they were, you know, one side to the other, talking to Jay, you know, busy people. You didn't walk up to them. Right. And, you know, everybody understood, yeah, you don't go up to them. Yeah. Um, but, no, I never saw Weird Al. That's too bad. Not one time. I know. Not one. Not once. But, so, but we had... Uh, we had a lot of fun. Did you just see the Gandhi scenes getting filmed, or were you there for any other parts to film? Oh, uh, we would go over to the uh, the uh, mall across the street and watch him shoot a lot of it. Yeah. So it was like you could get on. I mean, yeah, you could get on the soundstage just quiet, you know. But yes, I did get to see some of that movie shot, and then a couple of people I know actually got speaking parts in it that were local Tulsa actors. Oh yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So they they got they they did do. Uh, they were really good with the people in, in Tulsa. I mean, they, they hired local actors and they did a lot of, you know, they did a lot of stuff and they didn't act like they were from California and we were all a bunch of hayseeds and, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, well, I lived out there five years and half the time was, where are you from? And I, yeah, well, you really? <laughs> that sounds like a very positive experience all around. Oh, it was, it was fun. It was a lot of fun and being part of it now is even great. When you guys emailed me what, a couple months ago, I was like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> what, how many years has it been? What year did that come out? That was July 1989 is when it 89. OK, well, there you go. So we shot it in 88, I guess, probably. Wow. So that was summer of 88. Over 30 years. Correct. Wow. So, yeah. How often do people recognize you, you know, in the movie and they give you a call? Like, you're, they're watching the movie 3 a.m. and then all of a sudden you get a phone call. Oh, my God, I just saw you in the <laughs> How often I don't, I don't get that. But what I do get is, like, some of these millennials. I got a friend of mine. He's a Marine. And I just met him a couple of years ago. And he'd been in Iraq and Afghanistan and all kinds of stuff. And he's 35, 36. And anyway, we were talking, and he was telling me how, like, when he was growing up, one of his favorite movies was UHF. And I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, man, when I was growing up, man, I used to watch that show. I and mean, he had no idea. I hadn't told him anything. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't <laughs> love that much. Yeah, I used to love that movie. I'm like, I'm in that movie. He's like, no way. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm in that movie. And so uh, he's like, well, what? So I tell him it's the Gandhi scene. And, like, two days later, there's this Facebook post. Man, I can't believe my new friend Andy Billis was in Gandhi. And he's like, got a post of me doing the thing. And, you know, I, I was like, wow. So he really likes the movie, apparently. That's great. But, um, <laughs> so I've had a couple of those, but no, nobody calls me in the little night going, hey, I look a little different now. I'm a little grayer. Right. <laughs> now, Andy, I got to ask you I saw something online. You saved a kid's life on the 4th of July. Well, yeah, that was a couple of years ago. I think that was around 14, wasn't it? Um, yeah, just a bad boat accident at the lake. Kid lost his leg on a prop accident and Jeez. just happened to be on our dock. I mean, it wasn't our dock it happened on, but they were the, they, we were the closest one to pull up to. And, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe being over in Iraq and learning about, you know, trauma. I mean, as far as combat trauma and mm-hmm. loss of limbs and amputations and that kind of stuff, being a fireman. I just threw a piece of rope on him and kept him alive for about 45 minutes. It took forever to get a real crew up there of wow. actual medics and firemen because it's Grand Lake, Oklahoma. Great place, but the infrastructure for that kind of thing is not that great. Mm-hmm. And, well, the kid survived and, you know, moved on with his life. So, thank goodness. But, yeah. yeah wow. 
he got run over by a boat. I mean, that's just, you know, one of those deals. So, like I say, I've had kind of a crazy life. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> There's always something to talk about. I mean, I do have cocktail stories. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> Well, that's so amazing. I hope, you know, if anyone is through the Edmond, Oklahoma area, they'll check out Victory Boxing Club. And you've got an Instagram account for that, and so we can follow that, get all the information. Andy, this has been such a blast getting to chat with you. Well, you guys have been fun to talk to, and I've, I've, I thanks for calling me. Wow, thank you so much to Andy Billups for joining us on the podcast. I cannot believe his amazing story. That was pretty stinking majestic hearing about everything he's done in his life outside of being a thug in Gandhi too. <laughs> yeah. He's lived a great life. Absolutely. <laughs> so in that lineup, when the Gandhi two trailer starts where all the four thugs are lined up, Andy is thug number two. Well, our next guest, he is thug number one. Dave and I were talking to Gandhi thug, Andy Billups. And he said, you know who you should interview my friend Alan Kelly. He did the stunts for UHF, and he's who got me the part. Well, we listened to Andy, so please welcome T. Alan Kelly. How's it going, Alan? Doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on today. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, so we're talking to you from Oklahoma. Actually, I'm in uh, uh, Kansas City, Missouri. We moved up here in 2008, so I've been up here about over 12 years. Oh, wow. Okay. But you were living in Tulsa at the time of UHF? Yes, I was. I was. I, I grew up in Tulsa, and uh, I had karate schools and promoted events there all through the 70s and 80s. Went out to Arizona all through the decade of the 90s, and then I've been uh, all parts in between since then. So. so how did you get involved with the film UHF? Well, it's, it's kind of an interesting little story. I, you know, I had... Uh, I started fighting professionally in, in 1977 when I was 17 years old. I was the very first pro kickboxing fight in Oklahoma history. Wow. And uh, oh, wow. I, had, I fought for several years and throughout the 80s, you know, I had a, a pretty good-sized school there in Tulsa and promoted a lot of events and won a lot of national championships and things like that. And so uh, uh, there was a company called Movie Stunts of Tulsa, um, and the Oklahoma Stuntman Association it was run by Bob Maris and Brent Stice. And uh, Bob Maris, uh, him and I met uh, in a couple of uh, situations and got to know each other. And then uh, they had some movies coming up that they were working some stunt work with. Uh, and they asked me if I was wanted to be involved in that. Um, if you don't mind, you know, I, I'll kind of, there's something I try to teach my students on a regular basis about setting goals. So it's kind of an interesting story you might be interested in on how that, developed from my perspective there yeah if that's okay sure, we'd love, a second. yeah we'd love to hear well, it. i always I always tell my students you know it's okay to have goals and you think i want to do this and you think i want to do that and some things get done but it's really important to write down your goals so i was real fortunate in high school i had really good coaches and teachers you know that that influenced me and so in 1975 when i was in high school i wrote down five major goals i wanted to accomplish for my life and i posted them on the bedroom or the bathroom mirror so i'd look at them every day and be encouraged to take at least a small step toward each one mm -hmm. you know each day even one step at a time those five goals were to always want to be a pro football player but i was too young and everything and too small and so i want to be a professional athlete i want to be a teacher and a coach because those are the guys that influenced me the most so that was the first three mm -hmm. i want to do stunt work in movies and i want to be a pro bass fisherman <laughs> well, you know, when I started fighting, actually in 1977, I became a pro athlete. 
And when I had my schools open over the years, I was teaching, I was coaching, and I was fighting professionally. So I was all three wrapped into one, athlete, teacher, coach. So then I didn't know how to pursue the film business, but they came to me. And I got the opportunity to do stunt work in films. And then in 2005, I became a pro bass fisherman, and I fished for 12 years straight on four different pro tours. So wow. it went from 1975 to 2005 before I got all five things done. So that's 30 years it took to accomplish that list of five, but I got it done. And the stunt work was number four on the list, which happened in the late 80s with, uh, Stuntman, uh, with Oklahoma Stuntman Association. So that's the story in a nutshell. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Wow. Knocking off all five. <laughs> it's a big deal. But, you know, you don't ever give up. You know, when you put your focus, you feel like you have a destiny to do something, then you keep pressing forward toward it. Uh, you know, and, and my pastor in Arizona used to say, sometimes life's coming at us so hard, we have to dig our feet in and lean at a 45-degree angle and press forward so that when we fall, because we all fall many times in life, and you'll be a few inches farther than you were before when you get back up. And so eventually you'll get to your destination. So that's just something I've lived by for years and tried to pass on to my students. I'll never give up. So this stunt company you worked for, they were hired by UHF? Yes. Uh, their first big job was with Francis Ford Coppola on The Outsiders. Oh. And uh, so that got them involved in doing that kind of work. Bob Maris was the main guy, and he was a bomb tech in Vietnam, and then he was a bomb tech and, and detective on the Tulsa Police Department. Wow. Uh, Brent Stice was a sergeant on the Tulsa Police Department, and uh, so they formed a, a, that company, Movie Stunts of Tulsa, and whenever projects would come to Oklahoma, because it was a right-to-work state, so they could come in and do films, you know, and really, you know, help their budget a little bit, and uh, they had a lot of good locations in Oklahoma, so a lot of films have been shot there in the Tulsa area, and uh, so those guys were the ones that got uh, most of the stunt work that happened there. So what was the first project you did with them? We did a film called Cole Justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that had Carl Bartholomew, who used to be, you know, how most cities have the little afternoon, daytime kitty shows where they have cartoons and stuff. But they used to have some kind of goofy character that, <laughs> you know, leads them through the program. Yeah. Well, we had uh, Uncle Zeb was our Tulsa guy when I was a kid growing up. Uncle Zeb had a little gallery of kids and he had all kinds of fun stuff and characters on there and then they had cartoons. Well, he became, he wrote a movie called called Cold Justice and he ended up starring in it. He was a vigilante type guy, cowboy. And so that was the very first film. And then we did Bounty Hunter with Bo Hopkins. Uh, And then, um, you know, I went out to LA and lived in my van for about a year trying to break into the business a little bigger and Ed's with Rebecca De Mornay and Mary Gross. And then Dan Turner, we came back to Tulsa and did, Ann Turner, Hollywood detective with Mark Singer. And then we did uh, The Killing Device, where I star as a, you know, kind of a sadistic programmed, you know, killer. <laughs> <laughs> and that led into UHF, so. <laughs> so by my count, you were in the film UHF twice, right? In UHF, yeah. Well, I did a lot of the uh, coordinating behind the scenes on a lot of the other action scenes. Uh, we did a lot of pyrotechnic work, uh, you know, from for some stuff, some gags and everything. And then I was actually on screen doing the high fall through the window. I think I sent you guys a video yes. from behind the scenes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Loved that. I choreographed all the stuff with the fight scene in the alley with Gandhi where he slams me against the wall and throws me in the dumpster. And that's where uh, that's where Andy Billups was in that scene. I think uh, Gandhi punched all the way through yes. his body. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
one of my other black belt students, my very first Kicks American Karate black belt student, Philip Weatherington, he's the one that jumped down off the fire escape and Gandhi grabbed him by the neck and put a knife to his neck. <laughs> uh, another buddy of mine, Kenny Giddens, who lives in Memphis and trains uh, championship wrestlers uh, for years, he's in his 70s now. Well, he was the guy that when Gandhi come pulling up in the Ferrari and got out, he grabbed Kenny and banged against the Ferrari a few times. <laughs> all that up, I got to throw some of my buddies in there, you know, like that, and, and I'd choreograph all the, the action. And, and uh, the director was actually Gandhi. He was so excited to be beating up a bunch of big old thugs in the alley. He was just beaming for days over there. <laughs> Yeah, Jay Levy, he was he was Gandhi. And uh, he said, make me look good, Alan, make me look good. I said, oh, yeah, you're going to be some butt, buddy. <laughs> it's, it's such a memorable and iconic scene because it's just so wacky and out there on one side. But then when you actually see the action, it makes you want to see a movie where Gandhi's beating people up because it's, it's really fun action. And has that big old passive smile on his face the whole time, yeah. you know? <laughs> Well, I got a funny story if if you got if you want to, uh, about the high falls that I was doing out the window. Yeah, it was pretty interesting because we were using in the business, you know, what people have heard called candy glass. It's basically a baked sugar, and it's it's a real thick. So when you want big shards of glass, you use the the baked sugar substance to that type of the candy glass mm-hmm. because when you break it, it makes big giant shards. If you see a lot of times guys go through a plate glass window and you see the, uh, the small pellets shatter, um, we actually did some scenes in the office, fight scenes of that, you know, with Bob going through the glass. And I said, oh, we put electric or uh, explosive charges in the corners so that, uh, you know, you have to hit that charge just before the guy hits the glass and it shatters and he goes through. That's what you do with tempered glass. Hmm. So anyway, going out the window, they wanted the big shards, so we used that. So it was glazed and I couldn't see out. It was a two-story window I had to jump, and the windowsill was about knee-high to me, and so I couldn't see where I was going, and it was knee-high, so I had to jump out and head first through the window, but I had to go on cue with a walkie-talkie because they had an action going on on the sidewalk below me, so I had to be synchronized with what was going on down there, so I had to wait, and when they told me on the walkie-talkie, I had to blindly go through the glass. Well, I ended up jumping two or three, I think three or four times that day, which was nice because I got paid a couple of grand per jump. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, I had to go blind through the glass, jump over the windowsill, go head first, then locate the, the mat that I was landing on, which was a bunch of, you know, taped together cardboard boxes with a mattress on top. Yeah. <laughs> and then hit that perfectly, you know, for the scene. So we did it like two or three times, and I was hitting it perfect dead center every time. And then we had a big crew of about, you know, 100 people all gathered around, live gapping, you know, camera guys, all that stuff. And so my stunt coordinator, Bob Maris, my boss, he says, he says, there ain't no way that you can hit dead center on that every time. I said, oh, you want to bet? And he goes, I'll bet you 50 bucks right now that you can't hit dead center on this next jump. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So he drew a big X in the middle of my back. <laughs> he put a wet sponge in the very center of the pad. He said, and after you make this jump, if you get up and that wet spot's in the center of that X, I'm going to give you this $50 bill. <laughs> and I said, all right. So then the crew was all excited, man. They were, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> I went up there, I busted out that glass, and I looked down my target, and I rolled over, flipped over, and hit that thing dead center. And I jumped up, and I had that wet spot right in the middle of the X. And he was like, you son of a gun. And he had to pull out and count it out right there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's amazing. And just to put that in frame reference for our listeners, this is the scene where you get thrown or you get tossed out of Cooney's karate studio. <laughs> right. And then Getty Novi sticks his head out the window and says, Stupid <laughs> <laughs> Now, do you know whose arm went through the wall in that beginning part? Yes, I did. It was Bob Maris. He he punched through that. Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to punch through that wall. <laughs> Just make sure you don't hit the stud, so you'll be all right. (laughs) Oh, I love that part. So you jumped out of the window, you said, what, four times? I think three or four times, yeah. Yeah. And then how many times were you thrown into the dumpster? Uh, Gosh, we probably, you know, choreographed in the scene. We walked through it, you know, half a dozen times. And then I think, if I remember correctly, I think we only had to do that a couple of times. Yeah. I think we... I think we got it timed pretty good. Uh, I had a big old uh, pad taped to my lower back because when I flipped over the front of the dumpster, my lower back and hips hit the back of the dumpster, and then I slide down into it. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty uh, intense uh, fall. You know, it's really quick, and it doesn't look like that much, but boy, it was that heavy metal dumpster. It was a chore, and, and I think we I think we cleared it in, in I think two two takes maybe, if I remember correctly. Wow. It wasn't any more than that. I mean, the take is so amazing because you fly right into it. And your foot hits the lid, and it makes a big bang, and then you fall in. It's just, I love that scene. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty fun to do, that's for sure. And you notice that when I come at him with the knife, you know, he takes and and slams me first against that pallet hanging from the the wall. Yeah. And, I mean, that was harder hit than the dumpster. We did that three (laughs) times. (laughs) Wood on the pallet, you know. So... I told him we'd make him look good, man. He was, he was pretty happy about it. <laughs> Do you have any idea what your character names were as the karate student or as the thug? I'm pretty much on the script. That's the way it was, you know, karate student and thug. Yeah. You know, that, that's how. <laughs> now, not many of us get the opportunity to jump out of a second story window. Can you tell us a little bit what it's like going through your mind, falling two stories? You know, you know you're falling into some some safety and you know you've prepared for this, but... A lot of us don't get to do that. Can you tell us just what goes into that? Well, you know, we uh, we, we practiced a lot of high falls on a regular basis, you know, and, um, and this was a you know this was a rollover, you know. Like I said, the, with the glass being glazed, I couldn't see my target until I busted my head first through the glass, wow. and then on the way down, I had to spot my target, and then I had to roll my body just in time to land on my back on the pad, and so you know, twenty twenty five feet. That's uh, that's a pretty quick uh, thing, and, and you saw in the video that I sent you. It, it uh, you know ran in slow motion. You could see all that goes into it. Uh, it was it was pretty nerve wracking because I couldn't see. That was the biggest part is I couldn't see what was on the other side until I got through it. And other than that, it was just instinct. It was just something we practice a lot. So you trust your instinct. One of the things Bob Maris taught me, you know, uh, he used to take me out to an army base, teach me how to repel and. You know, we did a lot of other stuff that was pretty hairy stuff. And he said, there's a big difference between daredevils and stuntmen. Stuntmen are professionals. Uh, we make things, you know, we do dangerous things, but we calculate all the risk and we try to, you know, work it out and train for it so that when we do it, it's done safely, you know. So uh, there's risk involved, but it's not like a daredevil who's taking a gamble. So there's a difference between a gamble and a risk. Right. And so, but man, your heart gets pumping. I mean, and especially when you got to wait on the queue and, and, you know, from the radio there, and then it's just, you know, it's a blind jump. It's, you know, your heart's pounding through your chest, but it's it's a real rush. It's something that we enjoy doing. Um, you know, it, it's I just 
it was it was one of the most fun things I've ever got to do. You know, uh, I've, I've done a lot of different things throughout the years in films and other stuff that I've done, but uh, that was one of the, the most enjoyable. And plus, we got some really good pictures and video of it. And I actually use a picture, a really nice picture. Um, I don't know if I sent that to you. Me busting through yes. there and you see the that <laughs> in a lot of my promotions and stuff and everything. You know. Actually, I'm in the process of writing a book, and and the name of the, the title of the book right now is called "Always Jump Head First Into Your Dreams." And that picture <laughs> is actually a cover photo, you know, because you know, you just, if you if you dream big and you got a vision for your life, you know, jump head first into it. Don't be afraid. You know, you got to commit. You know, you can't pussyfoot around. You can't fiddle around and, and do it halfway. When you do something like that, when you when you chase your dreams and when you do things like this, you got to commit completely and trust the equipment, you know, trust the training. And if you do that, it'll generally work out well. Now, having said all that, I later went down to Orlando, Florida and was training stunt guys at a stuntman training center down there. And we would do high falls, do fight scenes on top of little buildings and do high falls, get punched off. And, do, and we were teaching guys how to do all this stuff. And one time we were doing this thing called a dead man's fall. We when you stand and you go backwards off of it, you take one look and then you just fall. You let yourself fall and you have to control your descent so that you land perfectly. Sometimes you'll stumble or push off your foot and, and over-rotate, and that's real dangerous. And if you do that, there's a way we do what we call drag a leg, and that balances out your body and, and, and flattens you back out so you land on your back. Well, we were doing that one day, and, and the guy I was working for teaching these guys he said hey kelly run up there at 45 feet on that platform show them how to do a dead man's fall he says i want you to over rotate on purpose and then do you know drag a leg so you can teach these guys how to how to get out of it i was like okay i've done that a hundred times so i jumped up there and, and i take a look and it, it was a six by um six by twelve pit and so if you push off just slightly one way or the other you can go six feet off and miss the pit so i, I took a look over and i and i went to fall and my foot slipped, and I over-rotated big time, way more than I should have. Mm -hmm. I landed on my head from 45 feet in oh, that And it ended up, I gave me a concussion, and then it was hurting for, for several months. I didn't realize I had a bulging disc, and eventually the disc ruptured. Oh, and I wow. had to learn how to walk all over again. I lost 50 pounds that year. I had to learn how to walk all over again. And, and, just, and then, of course, you know, I came back and started fighting a few years later again and doing stunt work again. And right now I'm sitting here twitching because I never noticed any adverse effects from it. Twitch, twitch, twitch. twitch. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm 61 years old and all that stuff's coming back around, man. All oh, those no. old injuries you feel from when you're younger come back and go, yep, I never really left. I was just waiting. <laughs> like an old friend coming to visit. Oh, man. Sorry to go off on a tangent like that. I get off on a rabbit trail I have a question related to the window fall. Now, you yourself are a karate instructor. Have you ever had a student fly out a window? No. <laughs> okay. <have> not. <laughs> That's a good we thing. Have, we, have had, we have had people get stuck in sheetrock. Oh, really? They <laughs> <laughs> kick into a wall and their hind end goes through the sheetrock and they get stuck there. So we have <laughs> Uh, I did uh, one time. Me and one of my younger brothers got into a little tussle, and I stuck his head through sheetrock. Oh my god! We, it was it was behind where the bedroom door opened, so I pulled him out real quick, and we kept that door open uh, open for a couple of weeks because it, it blocked. You couldn't see that there was a hole, a size hole. <laughs> hey, we heard Alan. 
Randy? Oh, oh crap, down the hole. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I'll tell you, one of my, uh, one of my top black belt students, uh, he's actually in his 70s now. He's a great, great martial artist, but he's also a, a national world champion hairstylist. Oh. Well, he had a, uh, he had a barbershop or a, a salon right next to one of our first karate schools there in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, and we hadn't met yet. And one day we were over there having a fight class, and guys kept getting slammed into the wall, and it was rattling his mirrors on his side on his salon. <laughs> so, and he had already had some training, you know, and he comes stomping over there, you know, he long-haired, bearded, hippie-looking dude, you know, and he, he comes stomping over there going, hey, you're rattling all the windows, and... and Oh God, you're Alan Kelly. I come watch you fight at the Civic Center all the time. <laughs> Those mirrors are going to be just fine. And he turned around, went back. Next day, he signed up in our classes, and he's still teaching our Kicks American Karate system in in uh, Catoosa, Oklahoma, right to this day in his seventies. Wow. But, uh, yeah, we've, rattled, we've rattled a few walls. <laughs> Now there's a point in UHF at the end where you know they go to rescue Stanley and there's a door and Cooney opens it and goes supplies and then a bunch of karate yeah. people come out. Are you one of those karate people? No, but I hired all those guys. Those guys, uh, the one of the very first guys, Mark Mercer, coming out of there. Um, he is uh, when he was a, a teenager. His parents used to sign over custody to me so I could take him around the country to the national tournaments and stuff. He was a great competitor, and he, he and I are just dear friends to this day. Um, we had the first same original instructor, uh, Kelly Hogan, who was murdered back in the 80s, and, and then uh, Mark went on to uh, run schools in his teenage years and then run schools you know, still to this day. But, uh, yeah, uh, him and, and one of his top students and a couple of their other guys and a couple of my students were all in there. And so, yeah, I, I, that's really awesome that you brought that up because that's always been one of our, all of us that were involved. That's always been one of our favorite scenes is the surprise. Yeah. Because... <laughs> <laughs> now there's another scene with a, a karate guy and that's the wheel of fish scene. And, you know, the guy comes down with the box in his hand. Is that someone that you knew as well? Um, I can't remember who did that. I can't remember who did that. I will tell you, you remember when uh, Stanley Spadowski took over the little children's show yes and right the little bl- blasted off of the thing with the fire hose yes <laughs> right <laughs> that was bob maris our stunt coordinator that was his little boy wow like, oh nice <laughs> <laughs> you had to rig that you had to rig a harness up on him and of course you know the way the camera set the fire hose didn't really blast him in the face it missed him by about an inch or two yeah but the way the camera hit it looked like him because we got on that harness and strap and jerked his tail you know, 10 feet across the room onto a pad. <laughs> he was like jazz to do that. You know, Bob goes, hell, my boy will do it. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, yeah, little Joel Miller. That's amazing. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, you know, we were talking about Uncle Zeb earlier. Well, that show that Stanley Spadowski did, you know, that was like one of those little children's shows that we're talking about. Right. You know, that everybody in the little towns, you know, and everything. Those are, those are classic, man. They don't do that anymore. I wish they did, you know. This whole world's changing. So. Yeah. You know, when you come to think about it, there are a lot of stunts going on in UHF that are, may not immediately be apparent to, to everybody. And you were pretty much involved in almost all of them, or all of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we coordinated so, all of the Anytime there's action scenes, gunfire, uh, anybody falling or 
you know, just any of that stuff required us to, uh, to, you know, they gave us a script way out several weeks ahead of time, and we decided how those scenes were going to play out, and we practiced them and choreographed them. And, and you know, like I said, uh, there's a difference between uh, daredevils and stuntmen. Stuntmen are professional. Make sure we get every detail right, and we go over it and go over it a hundred times to make sure nobody gets hurt, and make it look dynamic at the same time. So there's a real art to it. It's a, it's a real craft, you know. That guys that, that do that put so much effort into it that a lot of people don't realize because when it actually happens, it's in the blink of an eye. People go ooh and ah, but they don't realize what's involved in setting that up. Right. You know, we have a saying in our business is called 99 percent. Uh, boredom and one percent sheer terror. You know? So <laughs> we may sit around on a set for ten or twelve hours, and then we may have thirty seconds of actual terror when we perform the stunt. You know, so uh, but it's all preparation. You know, if if you prepare and set it up properly, you know, it's like the film we're doing now. We've been working on this for, for over a year, and and uh, and it's it's going to be pretty dynamic. You know, when it all comes together. It's the magic of movies, guys. That's that's what makes it so awesome. <laughs> Nothing like working on, on a set of a movie. It's just it's you know the movie industry is kind of funny in itself, you know. But you know, I've, lifestyle that some of the Hollywood elites live and all that is is just you know that's not what the real world is, you know. But working on the set, being with those people that are creative and and visionaries and and taking an idea and a concept and 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 creating something real out of it and that makes people go ooh and awe and, and get your heart rate up and makes you cry. And, you know, the, there's just a, such a, a craft involved in that. And, and that, that's the part that I enjoy. That's the part that makes it worthwhile is the actual construction of all that. Now, how long did the actual filming process take? Was this like months long that you guys were there or, or you know, just because you sound like you were pretty much on the set almost every day, if not every day. Yeah, uh, and you're asking a guy in his 60s with a small memory to remember back 30-some years. <laughs> you know, I think that, I think what we shot there in Tulsa probably lasted about a month. I think we were probably there about a month or so. I'm pretty much, it seems like that's what it was. It was about a month or so of shooting, you know, and, that, and that's, you know, like nowadays, right now, you know, um, the project we're working on now, they... You know, they changed the rules a little bit, you know, with SAG and everything. Uh, uh, right. They won't let us work on weekends. And they, and they, you know, they, you know, the union keeps it, a, you know, an eight-hour day. And we were working 14 hours a day back then and, and weekends, round the clock, straight through, no rest, you know. And, and wow. you know, of course, there were union rules, you know, they paid you bonuses if you were 10 minutes late for lunch, you know. If, right. if they kept you for your lunch break, you know, or something made you late to do that or you know, in any of the overtime stuff, that's why a lot of the movie budgets are in the millions, you know, because uh, they're racking up costs like that. Um, you know, but uh, it seemed like we shot it in about a month, is, is what I want to say, because we had several locations that we used, you know. Uh, and that was, that's another art form that a lot of people don't realize when they're watching the movie, all that goes into it is these set designers and the people that create these environments to, to shoot in. And, you know, like we had uh, uh, in, in one of the malls, they rented space and built these sets. You know, the newsroom set was, was in a mall down on, on South Tulsa that, you know, that they created these rooms in. And then, of course, you know, the window fall stuff was in, in some buildings downtown Tulsa and, and just, you know, the different locations you get to do. And, but there's people that create all those environments 
And a lot of times they'll take raw space and build it all out, you know, mm-hmm. to be whatever they want it to be and need it to be, you know. I'll tell you what, you know, one of my fondest memories from this movie was the relationship that I uh, had to develop with Michael Richard. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Him and I became pretty close. Um, you know, I, I uh, did some acupuncture stuff and, and uh, chiropractic adjustments, you know, uh, that I've been trained to do over the years by my chiropractors. And, and Michael, he was such a perfectionist. He was unbelievably rough on himself. He would fret, and he was neurotic so much about, oh, I, I should have done it this way. I should have done it that way. Oh, I, I, I was horrible. I could have done this. I, what do you think? Should I have done this? And it was just, you know, he was just obsessed with perfection, you know. And him and I became good friends, and he had some you know, stiff neck problems and some things. And so I'd kind of work out his joints a little bit, and we got to spend some time together talking. And, and I had a, a thing that I kind of – turned him on to that, that, uh, he just, he contacted me years later and said, man, it was unbelievable what happened. Um, one of my students was a psychologist and, and professor there at, at Tulsa university. Mm-hmm. And he made me a, a tape with a script that I listen to at night when I go to bed, it helps you relax. You know, it's kind of self-hypnosis thing. It helps you relax. Then it takes your goals and your dreams and you know, things that you want to accomplish in life, and it breaks down the details of what it takes to accomplish those. And so you're speaking those things into your mind while you sleep, and da-da-da-da-da, you know, and, and it really helps. It's real effective. It's helped me a lot over the years in different scenarios. But uh, I was telling Michael about that, and he asked me if I would make one for him. And so I did. And uh, over the month or so that we were uh, together there, um, he said, man, he goes, it just calmed his spirit so much. He wasn't nearly as frantic. He was still a perfectionist. He still worried about it. He could have done it better in this way and that way. But he said it calmed him so much. And then years later, he, he contacted me and said, man, he goes, you would not believe. He said, my career just skyrocketed. And he says, you know, I think that tape you made me helped me just take my my art form to another level and everything. I was like, oh, that's cool, man. I hope it helped. <laughs> you know? But he was such a fascinating guy, you know. He was just such a fascinating guy. And and Getty Watsonabi, man, that guy is just—I love that man. He's just so funny. <laughs> Both of those guys are what you see on camera. Is pretty much how they are. Yeah, they're just funny down the street. <laughs> Michael was just physical comedy was just nonstop. I don't know how he survived this movie. He probably beat himself up more than I did as a stuntman and a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> It was all, but that's, that was them. They were playing themselves. Yeah. And that's what's so cool about that is because they're just really funny, great, <laughs> honest people, you know, and I love those guys. Did you get to spend any time with Al? Yeah, a little bit. I was just going to say, he's, he, he's just such a sincerely nice guy. Mm-hmm. He's just, just a kind hearted guy. He's just, he was, he was, a lot of times when you got the star of a movie, especially somebody, he already had a pretty big career going at the time and, you know, a lot of times they keep people like that separated from the rest of the crew and the cast, and they come in, they do their thing, and they're off. And, you know, sometimes those people are just real uh, not friendly and, you know, and stuff like that. But he was just the opposite. He was just so down to earth and just friendly, and he wanted to get to know everybody, and, and he wanted to, you know, just, you know, just make sure to say hello to everybody every day and just be kind. And, you know, I just thought he just had the neatest spirit about him, you know, and, and, he well deserves all of the fame he's gotten and, and all the accomplishments he's achieved, you know, because he's so creative, but at the same time, he's got that, that kind spirit about it. You know, right. he's just, he's a nice guy and he's just a nice guy. Completely, so. 
I, I thought that was really awesome, you know, because it's, it's rare, you know, to run across that sometimes when you, somebody that's had the success that he had, you know, it, it was a real treat. One thing that Andy mentioned to us, and he, he couldn't really remember it, and, and he said we should try and get some more information on, was he remembers that on set was the actual bazooka from Rambo, but then it, it didn't end up getting used? Or Can you explain? Does that ring a bell to you? I, it's it's possible. There's certain things I can and can't talk about, you know? Okay. Um, Non-disclosure <laughs> stuff. And, and then, uh, but there was, a, there was a gentleman there in Oklahoma that uh, he lived out in the country. He had a... Uh, big, I want to say, it'd be like a what you consider a big garage underground. Okay. Uh, he's the guy we would always go to for our weapons. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he had a vault. It was a vault, garage-sized vault, that he had every kind of weapon you can imagine down there. And he's licensed for all that. I mean, it's that's his profession. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was way out in the country on an underground vault. And he also had a DeLorean down there, one of the DeLoreans that they used in Back to the Future. Wow. Oh, wow. He was, he was a collector of, of a lot of uh, uh, special weapons and things like that. He had grenade launchers, the bazooka. He had a lot of big 50 cows, a lot of just, I mean, just an unbelievable arsenal. And, and a lot of those special items that were keepsakes and, and special collector's items that, uh, you know. And, and what's so cool, you know, because he had a, a, a good business, uh, construction-type business that, you know, developed his fortune a little bit. But through buying, selling, and trading a lot of those, those um, uh, collector's items, he was a very wealthy guy. Mm-hmm. But he was just a good old country boy. You'd never know it. He lived out in kind of a farm type situation. Uh, his security device was a bunch of turkeys. Let <laughs> 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 you know if anybody comes around. <laughs> and uh, you got past the turkey, you had to deal with the Rottweilers. Right. So <laughs> you basically, uh, you know, called up the Rottweilers. And then, if, you know, if you survived any of that, then. Uh, by, by that time, he was down there, so <laughs> he didn't want to get caught uh, in any of those scenarios. But, uh, so, just in a nutshell, that's how that all came from. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. All I can say about that. He had some cool t-shirts he gave us, you know, big boys toys. And they called them, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for, that was a slogan for his company that, you know, that, that uh, contracted the, the firearms and stuff that we used in a lot of films. And you're working on a film, which is starting to be filmed like any day now, is called The Coward, and it was written by uh, Dean Piles. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's called The Coward, and uh, there's a Facebook page called The Coward, the movie. Uh, you can go to that or The Coward 2020. But Coward, the movie is the main Facebook page. You can go in there and look at the posts to keep up with the production as it develops. We went, it's, uh, it's down in Alabama is where we're shooting right now. Uh, it's an, we're going to start the first day of, of the main feature uh, is going to start uh, next Monday the 20th. And uh, so, and then we're going to, right after that, because of the corona stuff, it's kind of been pushing us off for several months. So right after that, we're going to spend a week or so down there, maybe shooting some of the second film, because with this group, cast of characters are going to develop several films over the next few years, but I uh, can't talk much about that. But um, 
this film, the, the premise for this film, it's an anti-bullying film. Dean Piles is a 40-sometime world champion, uh, Hall of Fame, uh, martial artist. Uh, there's several of us that are in this movie together that we are all Hall of Fame and, and uh, Sport Karate Museum inductees and cool. and uh, world champions. And, you know, so it, it's there's a lot of big-name uh, martial artists in it, but when people think of bullying, they think of, uh, oh, and, and Dean Piles is also Marine Recon uh, retired. He's, he lives in Florida. He trains Marine Recon down there. And, uh, and then there's Rob Buckland. He's one of the main co-stars. Uh, Mark Stone is the character that Dean's planned it. And he wrote the film. But, uh, and then Tom Stone, his brother, is Rob Buckland, who also just got inducted in the Sport Karate Museum. And he's a, a legitimate uh, ex-Special Forces and, and so these guys are real legit, awesome guys. But anyway, when people think of bullying, they think of kids a lot. There's a lot of adults that get bullied on a, on a wide scale. And uh, so, you know, just kind of a little bit about the movie. You know, the guy, he has a problem with the bullies when he's younger. He goes off, becomes a Marine recon, comes back to the small town. And the bullies are running the town. And now the bullies have kids that are grown kids and and they're breeding bullies basically yeah. and so now they're running down and terrorizing everybody and but uh, mark stone is struggling with a promise that he made his dad years ago and so he's trying not to use his martial arts to deal with these guys but eventually it's going to come down to you know it becomes too dangerous for people whose lives are in jeopardy and so he has to finally stand up to the bullies and so there's a big moral story to it and it's it's a big thing to try to help encourage people to stop the bullying, you know, that goes on. Um, and so it's it's going to be a great film. Um, you know, like I said, I'm I'm we're just getting ready to finish shooting. We were down there in November shooting uh, basically a trailer, a short version to use in some of the film festivals and to help get funding. Well, it did its you know took care of its objectives. So now we're fully funded and we're going forward with the feature film. Like I said, it'll be the first and hopefully a series that they're working on. But uh, I can't talk a lot about it, you know, other than just what I said. Yeah. But, um, it's going to be something going to be well worth it. It's going to be something like nobody's ever seen before. It's not your typical, just because there's a lot of karate guys in it, it's not your typical karate movie, martial arts, you know, low-budget thing. This is a high-budget. We've spent you know, two or three days a week for over a year. We've been doing Zoom meetings, reading the script, and getting together. We were down there several days in November shooting the, you know, the short version and, and uh, we've got a team of guys you know myself Rob Butlin he's got 20 some films under his belt as an actor and stuntman uh, you know, Dean wrote the movie he's going to be the star Mark Stone it's going to become a household word after this film comes out um, it's definitely something people should look for because uh, and, and it's got worldwide buzz right now there's people all over the world that are buzzing about this film really hard um, and it's just, it's going to be something that, that people haven't seen before. And, uh, and it's going to start up, going to start something. And it's getting ready to light a fire. But, um, you know, and us as martial arts instructors, you know, that's been our life's calling is to help people that are, you know, weaker or timid or right. whatever you want to punch, develop self confidence and courage to stand up for themselves and to stand up against people that want to abuse them. And, and uh, you know, back in the day, I used to even did a lot of, uh, you know, my dad was a, a deputy sheriff and a lot of the guys I worked with were all SWAT team guys. And 
detectives and cops and stuff like that. So I come from that background, and I'm real. I actually did a lot of bodyguard work and and some bounty hunting work in the day, and, and some of the stuff that I used to have to do. You know, when you take a bodyguard, you take a people guarding rich, you know, famous people or something. Then my biggest jobs were, for instance, if somebody gets fired at a job and they got to go in and clean their office out and their boss is a bully and is cruel to them and mean to them, and they would hire me to go in with them while they clean their office out so that, you know, they wouldn't get attacked or wow. you know, pushed around. Or, uh, and, then the, and then the opposite happened, too, a lot. If you got a boss that's that's a meek and mild person, you know, not a physical type person or, you know, a lot of confidence or aggressive, and you got a big physical, aggressive employee that you have to fire, you know, a lot of times I would get called just to come sit in the office because these these uh, employers would be afraid to have that, you know, encounter with somebody that's larger and physical and aggressive to tell them, hey, you're fired, you know? So, like I said, even way back, in those days in the 80s and 90s doing that, I saw the effect of bullying in adults. You know, how many adults had to deal with that and were afraid for their safety. And, and so this film's going to have a big impact on that kind of thing. You know, it's going to really hit home to a lot of people that have never seen it presented this way because nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody, you know, wants to talk about adult bullying. And it's a big, big factor. So we're going to take care of it. Let's fix that. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to see The Coward once that's out. I really am excited for always jump headfirst into your dreams, the book you're working on. Alan, this this has just been awesome, getting to hear about your experiences and your career. Thank you so much for joining us. Man, I appreciate you guys inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. It was nice to talk to you guys. And, and uh, if there's ever anything I can do to be of assistance in the future, don't hesitate to let me know, man. I think what you guys are doing is an awesome thing. Uh, I've always been a big Weird Al fan. And for you guys to uh, dedicate this stuff to him and, and to, you know, uh, to brag about his career like this and to, you know, give him, you know, an extra pat on the back the stage and, and, you know, and to keep the, the memories of that, those experiences alive. I think you guys are doing an awesome job with that. And again, it's just been a real pleasure and an honor for me to be uh, invited on the show with you guys. Thank you so much. Huge. Thank you to Alan Kelly and Dave, just to point out, he is the second person that we've interviewed from UHF with the last name Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> That was really cool. Thank you to both of those guys for joining us in the podcast. And thanks to Andy for putting in a good word with Alan for us. Yeah, I like how those guys, they remained really good friends all these years. And they both went on to live these incredible, amazing lives. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting when you, you know, you really look at someone who spent just a couple seconds in our favorite movie. And then, you know, you, you think about, well, they're a real person and they have their own lives. And these two guys who we just happened to interview had these insane lives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're both really tough guys, you know, really big, well-built guys. And they hang around with a lot of other tough people. <laughs> but once you get to know them, they're so much fun to talk to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they have really good positive memories from working on the film UHF. Yeah, that's the one constant in everyone we've ever talked to who is in UHF or worked with Al everyone had a positive experience. And that's really awesome to hear as a fan and supporter. Yeah, and I really loved it how Alan said that jumping out of the window was one of the highlights of his yeah. career. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that was interesting is Andy said Alan broke his foot when he jumped out the window, but Alan didn't mention anything about that. So we're going to have to clear that up with them at another time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Alan's such a tough guy, he probably just walked it off. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Now, you know, each week we can bring you this podcast absolutely free thanks to sponsors like Burrito Burrito and our amazing Patreon supporters like our friends Trevor, Stan, and so many more. Patreon helps us pay the bills and ensures that we can continue to do what we love, and that's making fun, family-friendly, entertaining Weird Al podcasts for you. Please join us in thanking all of our supporters over on patreon.com slash 2000inch for making this podcast possible. And please consider joining our Patreon family for as little as $1 per month. Every penny helps. Because you know what you can get for a penny? You can get the 10th spatula for a penny. Another way to support the podcast is by heading on over to our official merchandise shop, shop.2000inch.com, and purchasing some cool official Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast swag. Yes, our listener Trevor just posted a photo over on our Facebook group showing off his really cool Dave and Ethan caricature shirt on the beach. He was easily the best-looking person on the beach wearing that shirt. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) thanks again to andy billups alan kelly and all of our listeners subscribers patreon supporters and sponsors and thanks to everyone who follows us at 2000 inch on facebook twitter and on instagram be sure to join our facebook group by heading on over to group.2000inch.com if you have not already do your part and tag fun weird al or podcast related posts on social media using hashtag 2000 inch and hashtag gill and chill find us online at weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com make sure to share our posts tell your friends about the podcast and we love it when you leave us voicemail messages via our 27 hour a day podcast hotline it's 347 spatula If you're listening now, then you already know how to find us, but do yourselves a favor and head on over to Apple Podcasts, to Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, the podcast app of your choice, and hit the subscribe button. That way you will not miss a single episode. And next week we keep the UHF celebration rolling with a very special guest. Yes, Phyllis Weaver, the woman who spins the Wheel of Fish. Ethan, that was such a fun episode. You know, I can sum it up in just one word. Pretty stinking majestic? No. Artichoke. That was Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 63-inch. His security device was a bunch of turkeys.